following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. Morning, you are listening to Scotty Foster and Zena Richardson, your host today with Behind the Lines on 2XX Community Radio 98.3 FM in Canberra. And that was The Who with UV UVU. Uh, the Who are a Mongolian band, uh, and that name translates roughly into How Strange, How Strange. That song came as a request from one of our regular UK listeners, Teresa, who is very keen to hear what our guests have to say this morning and discussing what a green recovery and more green seats in the Australian Senate might accomplish and hopefully spark a trend for some uh, similarly desperately needed changes in the UK government as well. We are privileged to have in studio with us this morning Federal Greens candidates Tim Hollow and Dr Janara Goring-Goring. Tim is the Executive Director of the Green Institute and the founder of Greens Music Australia and he will once again run for the seat of Canberra alongside Waka Waka woman Dr Janara Goring-Goring who is an academic at ACU and Secretary of the Australian Greens First Nations Network, and Janara will seek to secure Canberra's second Senate seat. Tim and Janara bring a wealth of experience from the NGO, university, public and community sectors, as well as a lifetime of community and environmental activism, and they'll be introducing us to their platforms and their division and their vision of what two extra green seats in Parliament could accomplish towards a sustainable green recovery and a brighter future. So welcome to the show, Tim and Janara. It's lovely to have you here with your crazy busy schedules that you've made room for us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You're welcome. So what we found when we've had um, pollies in the studio for before, people running for office, um, our listeners really find it engaging to learn a little bit about you as people, to find out what drew you into the politics role, what drew you to the Green Party. You know, politics is not an easy game. It's it's can be really hard on your personal life. So mm. having that commitment to want to get into politics is always an interesting story for our listeners to hear. Um, would either one of you like to start about what drew you to deciding to run and what drew you to getting involved in politics to begin with? Um, yes, well... Should I start with I had a dream? No, I should say that the ancestors had a dream that they imparted to me some years ago about me going to the Senate. And in the way of our sort of First Nations business, we tend to sort of live in the world of the the chukupa, the dreaming with our ancestors. And I, I had this experience. And and so it was quite a few years ago now. And at the time I started to think, yes, this is what I want to do. And then I got engaged uh, with another political party. And then I came to the Greens because I had friends in the Greens. And I, pre- I prefer their value system and their politics. Then I got significantly involved in mm-hmm. some of the policy stuff, the Black Green stuff. Mm-hmm. And they're an easy organisation to be in politically. And then I discovered that politics was really my passion. The politics of doing policy, of making a difference to people's lives, particularly First Nations people, but of course everybody. And I've lived in Canberra a long time. I've been around this sort of very political city a long time, since the late 70s. I was married to somebody who was uh, connected to politics through the press gallery and I've, I guess I was very involved as an activist in my 20s and 30s and 40s in Indigenous affairs and politics, protesting on the lawns of Parliament House, mm-hmm. um, being very involved with Aboriginal people who came down to Canberra for uh, meetings. I worked in a lot of the early Aboriginal organisations when I 
came here. I was very involved with some of the leaders, mm. some of who have passed away now, but some of who are still with us. So I got very interested from that point of view, but I'm interested just as a person here in this country of Australia with some of the inequities that are going on here. And now that I'm much older and I've done all my study, I've done my career, I'm now a grandmother, you know, it's time, I've got the space and time for it. And I also think, well, it's sort of like a destiny for me in a way. Uh, yeah, and it's real, it's real and meaningful. So that's why I'm involved. It's not about, you know, the ego or the money or the place or the, any, any of that. Like, yeah. why would you do it? Yeah. Why would you do it for that reason? Yeah. Well, you wouldn't do it with the Greens. You'd be not going to one greens. of the other parties if <laughs> you wanted to greens. do it for no, that reason. you your own way in the Greens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's great. You know, yeah. like I give a lot of time to some of our national organisations and I just absolutely love it. Mm. Like it's my third job. So, yeah, I'm good. Fabulous. And we need more grandmothers in politics. We yeah, really do. We, we do. need all that life wisdom in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Raising grow, two generations yeah. of children. That's and you a have huge to have thing. children. You, you know, you have relationships. You're involved with the education system, the employment system. You know, I spent years at ANU doing my PhD and learning lots of other stuff about mm. what I was doing. So, yeah, it's important. And as a teacher at an academic level, you know, I love my students and the importance of maintaining that mm. in a good way. And I, I grew up in the era of free education, free mm. university. And it's so important mm. that we take care of that, but also the researchers and the people who work in our universities. Mm. So, yeah, that's why I'm interested. Yeah, I was away for a long time overseas and I came, there was free education when I left and there was no free education when I got back. How it was does that a happen? bit of a shock to see all the changes that had happened. So. Yeah, how does that happen? <laughs> They're not working, as we've clearly seen. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, so, Tim, you've run before as well. You're, you're having have. another go at this one. I have. I yeah. missed out on the free tertiary education, although when I did it, it was a lot cheaper than it is now, yeah, I tell you what. Yeah, look, I come to politics definitely through activism, um, mm. like Janara as well. Um, I, um, you know, I grew up kind of very, very passionate about environmental issues um, and very, very aware of, of kind of social issues, in particular um, as, the, as the child of refugees and grandchild of Holocaust mm -hmm. survivors, kind of growing up surrounded by the, the, the knowledge of, of the worst mm -hmm. that, um, that human societies are capable mm -hmm. of or those in power are capable of doing to the rest of us. Mm -hmm. Um, as well as the deep passion for, for environmental issues from a very, very early age. Um, and as I grew up, I got more in, involved in activism mm -hmm. through particularly um, at university, speaking of university, mm -hmm. um, and went uh, you know, through kind of straight out of that into, into, into climate mm -hmm. policy and climate activism, um, worked for mm -hmm. a range of NGOs, including Greenpeace. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really through that that I kind of got involved with the Greens. I joined mm -hmm. the Greens Party many years ago and, and was was kind of vaguely involved, but then as a um, as somebody who'd already been active in in the climate space for quite some time, Christine Milne, when mm -hmm. she got to the Senate, um, in, um, invited me to come onto her staff and and that was really my plunging into politics mm -hmm. and that experience of working for Christine for six years. Um, really changed me in all sorts of different ways. Mm. Um, really, gave, it gave me both a deep appreciation for the things that you mm. can achieve mm. through politics and it also gave me a deep appreciation of the things that you cannot achieve mm. through parliamentary politics. Mm. Um, you know, I was there through that period when... Um, 
Kevin Rudd was promoting the idea that climate change was the greatest moral challenge of our time while funneling vast quantities of cash to the coal industry um, and, you know, turning on, on, you know, one day blaming the Greens for not talking and then the next day slamming the door in our faces and refusing to talk to us and and then managing to negotiate with, you know, Christine's leadership, this extraordinary climate policy, which then... Tony Abbott turned around and destroyed. And it's like, okay, so what What do we do? How do we create change? And so I went away for a while. I, I also as a musician kind of set up this organisation that you mentioned, Green Music Australia. Yeah, I was working, ask you about that one too. Yeah, working, you know, we can talk about it a bit more, but it's basically working, working with musicians to help lead the way through music and culture, lead the way to what is it to live greener, to be greener. Um, so kind of around practical things that musicians can do, but also using that practical change to inspire the, the cultural mm-hmm. and social change. You know, the, the huge difference that it makes if you see a musician that you love mm-hmm. on stage drinking from a plastic water bottle, taking a swig and chucking it away versus picking up a reusable bottle and having mm-hmm. a sip and putting it back down again. It's a massive cultural difference. So that was that. And I kind of went away and thought about that for a while and slowly came back to the party politics and the, and the capital P politics. Mm-hmm. And I do have a I do have a belief and kind of the main reason I'm particularly interested, Janara and I have had some interesting mm-hmm. conversations about the difference between the Senate and the House. And the real main reason I'm very interested in being a local member is I'm interested in the kind of the social and cultural role that you mm-hmm. can play in that space of kind of bringing mm-hmm. people into different ways of thinking about democracy. And that's what I've been doing at the Green Institute for the last few years is really working deeply on what is democracy? What are we trying to achieve mm-hmm. here? Is democracy what those in power tell us it is, which is turn up and vote for the least worst and then bugger off and don't bother us again yeah, for a few years. On, Thank you very much. What we're doing, yeah. um, or is it actually the various processes by which people come together to make the decisions about our mm. common future? That's what I believe it should be and that's what I would like to kind of try to open up through being a local member. Mm, we're going to touch on a little bit about that, what you mm. mentioned just now about participatory democracy mm. a little mm. bit later into the show. So that is just absolutely fantastic that both of you bring all that wealth and knowledge to this role. Um, what what vision do you hold? Like, you know, everybody goes into politics with an ideal and a vision and, you know, it gets shifts and adjusts over time. But what, what, what's your vision, Gennaro? What, what, would you, what would you hope to achieve if we can get you in the Senate? So, well, I have visions for different things, but my vision for the world is to help people be resilient and capable of managing the physical changes that are going to happen to the planet, because there's certainly quite a lot of them coming along, and they will continue to come with climate change. And also, you know, there are lots of Aboriginal stories from our oral history about the things that are going to happen to the planet. So we take these things seriously. We're taught to take care of our space and our country and the things that we do on it because we have as humans a great impact on the planet and it can't be sustained without us taking care of it so my vision is certainly to sustain the planet look after it because why would we want to destroy it it's our only home why fill it up with garbage why destroy it why blow it up why clog you know just choke it up why do that so that's my vision for that then the vision for people uh, is to manage being able to manage what's going to happen to planet systems to food systems to 
your normal living systems that you take for granted every single day? What happens if the electricity disappears? What happens if, you know, your water stops running? What happens if we run out of water? What happens if a, you know, a tsunami comes and knocks your house over? There's all sorts of things that could happen that are very unexpected. You know, people don't plan for bushfires properly. Like Aboriginal people looked after the bush so we didn't have those kind of bushfires because they couldn't have sustained living in a country that... Mm-hmm. with such bushfires mm-hmm. so it's extremely important for that then my other stuff is about wanting to transform and having relationships that are transformative with people and of course from my own personal perspective mm-hmm. my inner perspective is transforming myself so that I can be of benefit to people in the world and I've spent a good 40 odd years doing that mm-hmm. so you know that also impacts what I do in the world so as I get older particularly in First Nations culture where taught that we have to live the laws uh, that we are given so that the young people who come after us can see and observe what that is so that we can be their leaders as elders and you know I'm very mindful of that when you're in your 20s and 30s you do as you please and when you become a parent then you have to be a leader and a and a parent for those children and then grandchildren and so on Mm. and also it's about having relationships between white and black Australia that are healthy collaborative unified and where we can speak honest truth you know Mm. like if we're going to talk about racism then let's talk about the truth and if you feel something about something that's different to what I feel about it Let's have collaborative relationships. What's wrong with that? You know, we lived in a pure democracy before white people came. It's totally possible to have a pure democracy with human beings that have completely different point of views. So, yeah, my, my vision is have, to have a world that's capable of transformation where we don't all fall apart when it does start to change. And change is just inevitable in life anyway. It's always going to happen every minute, every day. And, and to... I really want to impart the knowledge that First Nations people have to the rest of people in Australia who do not understand how to take care of our environment. We have a huge oral history of a very, very long time here in Australia of taking care of this country. And now it's evidenced by all sorts of books that are being published and research that's being shown. And people are starting to think, yeah, well, maybe if we fire burn like Aboriginal people do, we could look after country a bit better and not have these gigantic bushfires. Yes, yes, yes. If we looked after the Murray-Darling Basin water basin better. Like, do we think water just comes from nowhere? You know, it's always going to rain. It's always, there's always going to be the artesian basin. I don't think so. Well, they're so. fracking that to death. Yeah. Right so now, so we really yeah. need to be careful. Like, yeah. wh- and what are we doing to animals in the sea, animals on the planet? What are we doing to like? I just hate what we're doing to kangaroos. Mm. Like, it's horrible. Mm. So I think we. It's good to have conversations with people where we go and make a difference, and also listen to people who have really hard lives, who really don't get looked mm-hmm. after and don't get cared for, and people who are living alone and isolated. I know what it's like to be homeless, to be a single mother, to live in you know situations where I didn't have enough money to feed myself and my child. You know, I want I want us all as a government, but also as a group of people in in the community, to be looking after people who can come to the door and say, "I need some food," and we can give it to them or I need a house and we can give it to them that we don't leave women or men in situations where there's violence and abuse we don't let children be abused that we have a better child protection system like that's just it's horrific Mm. 
So I think we can make a difference. We're all so very clever as human beings. We certainly can do it. So, yeah, that's... And also as a First Nations person, we have a vision to change that. Like, it's not for me about closing the gap. It's just about giving us the dignity of what we had before and what we really deserve now. The dignity of a voice in our own country, of having a treaty, of having our sovereignty recognised internationally and nationally and looking after you know, our people so that they're not incarcerated, so children aren't in custody at 10 years of age. You know, and that people aren't dying out in the desert because they don't have enough food and shelter. Mm. So, yeah, that's that's it for me, That's a beautiful, all-encompassing vision. And you you really asked the the exact question that why we're here today is that why would anyone allow these terrible things to happen? And, you know, this is... I guess what we're trying to do is get a change in leadership here because right now a lot of these terrible things are happening because of policies that aren't working. Yeah, and And people in our community who vote for us need to know we care. Like people Mm. are very cynical about politicians. Mm. We're worse than used car salesmen. Well, why wouldn't that be the case? You know, because once they get into office, so many of them, you don't feel like you Mm. can go to the door and ask for help. But I think it ought to be an open circle space Mm. where people can just come and say hey you know i need this we need that let's share you know let's set up stuff Mm. Uh, i'd like to be able to be known as a caring compassionate and empathic politician something different to what Mm. we have now somebody who stands up and tells the truth is honest integral Mm. and authentic Mm. like i don't work in sacred leadership Mm. for no reason Mm. i do it because i want to be authentic i want Mm. to be integral I want people to know that I, if I was sitting in the Senate, I'd be sitting there thinking about what that legislation would have an impact on their lives today if I voted this way or that way for it. And it would be about what does the ACT want? What do people here really want? And you've got to find out from people. You can't sit behind a glass door and not go and ask people, how would you like me to vote if this affects you? It's not about money and wealth and power and ego. It's about how to make our lives better mm-hmm. on the ground. Yeah. And yeah, having that connection, we had Andrew um, Braddock on the show um, just after he got elected and he was telling us in his electorate in Yarrabee that um, he wrote personal messages to many of his constituents. I think it was something like 60,000 wow. personal messages. And when talking to people in his electorate they said to him that made all the difference having that real connection with a real person you know even if it was just a a short sentence and that that changed everything for for him and he got into an electorate that's traditionally um, a liberal electorate so yeah that's Mm. that's change in action there makes it people really want to know that you can you are there with them and for them Mm. So why did you guys choose the national sort of scale? We've got sort of local scale and state and national. What what made you choose national as the the sort of scale you wanted to have a crack at? It desperately needs it. (laughs) More than anything else. Like, I mean, the ACT is not perfect, of course, but I think we're doing pretty well here politically like we need we need a lot more done and the greens members of the legislative assembly and and the three ministers we have now are painfully aware of how much still needs to be done but we're working on it you know and at a federal level geopolitics is a mess and um you know 
the, the, the nine Greens in the Senate mm. are doing a tremendous amount of work mm. trying mm. to trying to shift mm. things but kind of almost in almost in a position mm. of, of sort of being a um, being a speed bump on on the road kind of to to the destruction of democracy and the destruction of our of our environment. Um, I think we need greater numbers mm. in there, substantially greater numbers mm. in there to shift the direction of our politics and that's mm. that's really what you need to do which you mm. you were adverting to and Janara of course mm. talking uh, in in beautiful powerful terms mm. about um you know we need to you know it's not just about shifting mm. the bums on seats mm. it's about shifting the conception of politics that we have and the conception of ourselves as well mm. I, I i just loved what you said Janara about you know we're we're really clever we can work this stuff out mm. Surely we can, and and there's just there's so much wisdom in that idea that that that's been squashed by capitalism and this adversarial politics that we have that says no, shut up and go away. We've got this, and you're not clever enough to work it out. Um, bullshit. Sorry, the people the people have the wisdom, um, and give the people the opportunity to talk about these things and to work things out mm. together, work things through together, and we will do it. We will do mm. it really, really well, much better than those guys are mm-hmm. now. So that's, you know, that's what we desperately need at a federal mm. level. The ACT Parliament, the Assembly, I think partly because it's got these five five-member electorates and, mm. and we virtually never have majority parliaments, mm-hmm. um, is much better at having deliberative conversations, conversations mm-hmm. where people come together and work through ideas across the floor. That doesn't happen pretty much at all. Having been as a staffer in, the, in that federal parliament for six years, I can tell you even in, the, even in the parts where it's really designed to happen, like the committee system or the estimates hearings, it doesn't happen. It's, it's, it's mostly old white men yelling at each other. It's a very adversarial. It's extremely yeah. adversarial. It's designed on an adversarial basis and that's really not how we should be doing politics. And if I get in there, what I really want to do is is try to shift that dynamic to the extent that one member out of 151 in the lower house could possibly do, but to really try to create space more, as I said, outside the parliament, in fact, than inside of how do we, how do, we do this better? Well, it used to be, I think, many decades ago that that was how a lot of things was were done. The, the two parties would go to the same pub and they could hmm. talk to each other and have arguments and they could probably punch each other at that point and get away with it. But, um, you know, um, nowadays it's really quite separated, isn't it? It's extremely separated. Um, yeah, and I think it's that, that culture sort of seeps through deeper and deeper just like you know the capitalist culture that we're all we're all constantly in competition and we're selfish individuals and that's what we're told and so we start to behave that way when you have a when you have an adversarial culture it starts off maybe with with a good intention of two people advocating different sides what what happens where do you get to but it just it becomes so deeply entrenched that you can't see eye to eye and the irony is that unfortunately our major parties Agree on ninety five percent of the things that they that they're doing actually, um, and yet still they fight each other tooth and nail over that last five percent, and and we disagree on a whole lot of that ninety five percent actually. But the way to achieve it isn't through necessarily going in and being part of that adversarial structure. It's by shifting the way we have those conversations. So yeah, I'm really, I'm both, I'm both kind of really keen and also, you know, very aware. 
and cautious and you know trepidatious that it's very easy to get caught up in the culture of a place like that um but yeah by being connected to the community and by being in and with the community all the time and kind of asking asking the people to kind of take part in these conversations i think that's how we shifted yeah. and there's a there's a bunch of people you know when i say one out of 151 like uh, one of the things i'm most impressed about is yeah, I think Adam Band has done an incredible job of working with his electorate and and being a spokesperson for his electorate and 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 the delegate for his electorate really. And and there's a few others of that model and and the Voices for Indi model and Helen Haynes are mm. just doing an extraordinary job in yeah. that space. And you know, Indi's doing uh, yeah, amazing. Indi's yeah. doing extraordinary yeah. things. And and Andrew Wilkie as as the delegate for his community in in Denison in Hobart. Mm. You know, there are a bunch of people in there mm-hmm. who really believe in doing it differently. Um, and I think if we can work together on that front, then mm. things can change. Well, I actually have a, a quote from Adam here, and he was mm. saying that um, we have to take back the balance of power in Parliament, exactly what you just said. And he's saying with a 1% swing, that's just two more seats. I can see two people sitting in front of me right now. It's <laughs> <laughs> just two more seats. They can swing the balance of power wow. and make yeah. all of that difference. I mean, the way I look at it as well is thinking about the shift that we've seen in Canberra from, you know, we had a majority Labor government and then we had one with balance of power of the Greens and the Greens managed to shift a bit and and three terms of balance of power of the Greens, mostly with quite small numbers, have really enabled us to do things like get this city onto 100% renewable energy, do some actual, you know... A a hospital which is 100% renewably powered, the first (laughs) in the Southern Hemisphere, as I understand. (laughs) Um, You know, pill testing at festivals. (laughs) you know, PACER program. PACER, so much work in mental health, which... Gee, there's so much more to do mm. on mental health, but mm. but so mm-hmm. much has is you know so much mm-hmm. progress is being made, mm. um, and you know the difference now from having two MLAs to six and three ministers mm-hmm. at the cabinet table, the difference mm-hmm. that we can make. Imagine if we could get some of that into the federal parliament mm-hmm. house. Imagine if we could have, have the same ratios. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how long it'll be before we have the same ratios. But even the difference, you know, as I said, from my experience of, yeah, the first the first Rudd government where he had a majority in the house, he didn't have a majority in the Senate, but he kind of had no idea how to negotiate with the Senate and really didn't care and didn't feel that he had to. It wasn't fair that he had to because he had the majority in the House. To the Gillard years where they didn't have a majority in either House and they had a different leader, a person who knew what it is to negotiate. And you could have those conversations and you had deliberative conversations mm-hmm. in that place. And that term of government was the most productive term of government since Whitlam. Mm. So much got done without majorities because there weren't majorities. Mm-hmm. Because there weren't majorities. Mm. And we didn't get to ask you about your vision, but I think you've shared a whole lot of it right there. Were there any particular aspects that have really impassioned you that you would like to bring mm. to your role? Look, so much like what uh-huh. Janara said, um, I am driven by mm. the fact that that things are already hard for a hell of a lot of people and they are going to get a hell of a lot harder mm. in the coming years. We know that mm. because of because of what those in power, because mm. of what this adversarial capitalist mm. dominating system has done, there are going to be a lot of problems coming through. And our our most important task is to create systems that are going to enable us to survive and not just survive but thrive mm. in what's coming. And I absolutely believe we can. Absolutely. I'm not one of those people who says climate change is is a disaster. We're going to go extinct. We're going to fight each other to death. I don't believe that. Mm -hmm. I believe that we are better than that. We are 
wiser than that. But we have to make it happen Mm -hmm. because there are too many people in power who just Mm -hmm. want to make as much money as they possibly can Mm -hmm. before they die. The rest of us don't believe that. Um, and we need to make it so. That's that's what I want to do primarily: is be be part of that process of ensuring that um, as the shit hits the fan, we are ready and we are able to survive and thrive together. Mm. Well, they've done actual um, intentional experiments around what you've just, both of you have just shared, which is saying that human beings, you know, healthy functioning human beings. Um, are hardwired to care, to share, right. and to be fair. And that was um, psychologist, US psychologist mm. Lynn McTaggart who mm. ran a lot of experiments around that. And we're actually hardwired for cooperation, not mm. competition. Mm. And the, all of the experiments, there's, there was a, a whole suite of experiments in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, the famous ones like the Stanford Prison mm. Experiment and things like that, which mm. sought to prove that humans are competitive and self-interested and will do anything mm. to get ahead. And there's now a, an amazing amount mm. of reconstruction of that going on that shows that in fact those experiments were falsified Mm -hmm. were absolutely falsified and they had to push incredibly hard to get people to behave so nastily to each other they had to create very clear conditions and circumstances Mm -hmm. to ensure that people were nasty to each other and you know it's the it's the debate that was happening in the late 19th century between darwin on one side and and kropotkin Mm -hmm. on the other and kropotkin you know, one of the one of the founders of, of anarchist philosophy, saying as a scientist, mm-hmm. saying that we are fundamentally and all all life is fundamentally driven by mutual aid. Mm-hmm. That is what that is what life is about mm-hmm. primarily, mm-hmm. and there's so much evidence for that. And and I've been privileged to to learn a lot from Gennaro over the last mm-hmm. few years about indigenous mm-hmm. culture and 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 extraordinary true democracy that mm-hmm. is based on that. Mm-hmm. It certainly is totally. Yeah, I remember on the on the other side of that coin, I guess Douglas Rushkoff, who's a uh, a guy who's been in the, the tech industry forever, but he thinks a lot about the future. And as part of that role, he gets these wacko consultant jobs talking to the super rich. And he was talking to one super rich person who was asking, right, so when I've got my island and everything's gone to gone to hell, how am I going to keep control of my troops so that everybody doesn't come and get my food? <laughs> it's like, you know, isn't totally it a, thinking isn't about it. it. Totally thinking about it the wrong way, mate. <laughs> At that point, you need to change what you're doing. Yes. Yeah, it's true. It's fundamental that humans want to belong. You know, they want to belong somewhere and with each other. It's one of the terrible psychological things that happened in Australia was mm. to tell Aboriginal people that they didn't exist, terra nullius, and mm. actually that then to take them off the thing that they most belong to, mm. their spirit and their country. And, you know, when, when I learnt about the ceremonies that connect your spirit to country, you know, the ceremonies we do when a child is born and, and you know... I, could, I couldn't really do those. My mother did, but then to have my daughter do them for her daughter was incredible, you know, to take her to the women's mountain here and have the elder here on, at that sacred place name her and smoke her and rub her with ochre, the things we do when they're born. You know, the, it, 
it connects the spirit to the country so that you never feel lost, you know, because you come from that other place to the planet. So you have to have some energetic connection. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have these ceremonial rituals. You know, I think it's what keeps us very stable and grounded as a culture Mm -hmm. and resilient and courageous is that we have had these rituals and ceremonies and songs and stories and dances for so many thousands of years that connected our spirit to land and culture and practice of spirituality and law that enabled us to be very strong and resilient. You know, when I look at my mother's, my mother, my grandmother's, my great-grandmother, my grandfather, all those people, the resilience they had from the day white people came you know, to to figure out what was going on and then to survive it mm-hmm. and then to adapt to it and then to be able to manage so that they could hold on to the law for everyone else. You know, and, and when I learnt about, you know, what we do in human development and how important it is to belong and then to understand that, you know, if you tell a culture it never belongs and it doesn't belong and they don't exist, mm-hmm. Even though there they are right in front of you, what kind of culture does that to another culture? A psychopathic one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there is a psychosis around that. And, yeah, I think that's really held us, that our, mm. that our older people have been able to hold on to everything so none of us lost it. Mm. And it'll never go. Like, we, we've just been here too long and we've held it too long. We just are too responsible it's for this country. It's in your genes now, right? Yeah, it's it is. It's a DNA. So, mm. yeah, we, we can never lose it and it can never lose us. Mm. And a beautiful thing about both of you is that you're also both authors. Mm. And, uh, Janara, you wrote a, a lovely memoir called um, A Long Way From No Go as well as a, a fictional novel called The Red Earth and you've also contributed your poetry uh, to an anthology called Inside Black Australia. Would you like to tell us a bit about the importance of stories in your culture and the influence that they have on the human journey and the the choices that we make in our lives? Yeah well you know as a child at school you wouldn't I wouldn't have sat down and said oh you know this is what is happening to me people are telling me stories and but actually that's what did happen like from a very early age you watch your mother father grandparents all sitting around uncles and everybody sitting around even when they're playing guitars and singing they're telling stories you know and in there crying and whatever over their pretzels (laughs) they're telling stories about everything and then you know your mother talks in language and she sings in songs and (laughs) she sings those songs in language and that tells you a story so I I wouldn't have really said it back then but when I look back that's what I see (laughs) so the telling of stories is extremely important and I have a dear dear friend who works with me in our business, but also Mm -hmm. teaches creative storytelling at the University of Canberra. And he does a thing called Story Ground, which is helping Aboriginal people write stories about their connection to country. And we do stories in our work in transformational leadership. We get people to tell stories because it's so deeply personal. Um, Doing my memoir wasn't something that I was really looking to do. I wrote The Red Earth because I'd been in a court case putting a priest in jail in Mm -hmm. the late 90s or mid-90s and I started to do like a journal Mm -hmm. about what was happening and all the feelings I had about that, a bit like therapy. And then it just sort of morphed into this (laughs) 560-page book and then I put it into... I waited 10 years on the shelf and I put it into the David Unipin Award and it was a finalist. And then Cathy Lewis from Wildingo Press got given it mm-hmm. and she read it and she rang me up and I happened to be in Tennant Creek. I was mm-hmm. camping, going mm-hmm. to visit my adopted family at Uluru and she said, um, is anything in this book true? Because I'd written mm-hmm. that it was based on fact. 
And I said, it's totally true, mm. nearly all of it. Like mm. there's a bit of embellishment mm. of certain characters, but mm. it's totally true. Well, can we make this a memoir, an autobiography? And mm. I said, well, that'd be great, but I need somebody mm. to write all the really hard and horrible stuff because mm. I, I don't think I can write that, mm. like the early childhood stuff and mm. then the whistleblowing stuff. Mm. And she said, all right. So it took us a couple more years to find somebody to do that with. And then it took us a couple of years <laughs> to do that whilst I did my PhD. <laughs> so that was fun. So, yeah, then we wrote it and then we were thinking, what will we call it? And I went, well, my parents lived on this station called No-Go. And this senior person in the government years <laughs> ago said to me very sort of egotistically and arrogantly when he found out where I came from, from, you know, Longridge and this cattle station, he said to me, geez, you're a long way from no-go, aren't you? You've come a long way, girl, like that. And I was just like, whoa. When I told Cathy, she said, oh, that's what we got to call it, <laughs> a long way from no-go. And, like, even though I didn't really grow up on no-go, my parents lived and worked there and then we moved to town when I was tiny, um, I still hadn't the experience of living out in that sort of nothingness. Mm -hmm. And my, we went back out there every now and then. You know, we went out there and that's where my mother was quite happy to sing in language and so on. She'd never do it in town around white people because they all got, you know, people got shot for that or they got killed or something, mm -hmm. you know. My uncle got killed on a nigger hunt in the 70s and mm -hmm. the students I teach are shocked about that. Mm -hmm. They just don't know that that's was possible and we all had passes you know like people don't understand we lived in apartheid uh, you know grandfather had a pass mum mm -hmm. had a pass we had passes you had to show them to the police everything about your life was controlled if you didn't do what they wanted you'd end up in a mission and that was like death so yeah telling that story was great but I also had to get out that story about the Catholic priests and the sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. I just had to get that out. It's like you have to write that whole thing. Mm -hmm. And you can do it in therapy, but when you write it down, it's like it's gone now. Mm -hmm. It's externalised mm -hmm. out of you. And we know in therapy when you do mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. then it's done. And it was so done. Mm -hmm. And it really helped me recover. Like mm -hmm. I just thought I have to be courageous. Mm -hmm. It really helped me recover. One of my Aboriginal friends said, do you really want the rest of the world to know about this? Mm -hmm. And I said, if somebody else, I know there's lots of Aboriginal people who got abused, they don't even know, they don't mm -hmm. tell these stories. So if someone tells this story, mm -hmm. maybe they'll go, that's my story. Mm -hmm. soon as, it, as soon as the book mm -hmm. came out and it was in my local paper in Rockhampton, mm -hmm. there was a big hoo-ha because mm -hmm. the priests were from there. Mm -hmm. And one of these Aboriginal ringer rang me up and said, that priest abused my auntie, my mother, my grandmother and me. Mm. And she had never told anybody. Mm. That same man who was considered a very high-level person in that community. Mm. So, you know, if one person will get recovery from that, that's why you tell a story. Mm. And then I just wanted to tell the story of my early life because it was so fascinating in my 20s and 30s to be married to somebody in the press gallery who, you know, and I went up there every day mm. and was running around with all these people in government. You know, we, we looked after Bob Hawke's house. You know, Bob used to come over all the time with Hazel and mm. it was just so fascinating. Here I am, a 20-year-old who's mm. out working with Charlie Perkins mm. and I'm coming home to this sort of 
place where all these journos are sitting around my dining table smoking dope mm-hmm. and carrying on about what's going on in Parliament and eating all the food in my fridge because they got the munchies. And, you know... Yes, and they've just hu- done a 16-hour shift. And, that's it. And, and my husband's off to the next war that he's going to because he loves taking photographs of war. <laughs> and, you know, here I am coming home and, and Bob's coming in the front door saying, I'm just bringing Jeannie around to have a look at the flat. And, like, and may oh. I say to our international listeners, Bob Hawke's a former Prime Minister of oh, Australia because yes. some people may not realise that. <laughs> and, like, yeah. our house was closest <laughs> to Parliament House, so yeah. uh, press the press <laughs> club. So everybody would mm-hmm. fall drunk into our house for food mm-hmm. if they needed it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'd come home from a day at work and like, oh, yeah, I've got to go shopping again. <laughs> so it was quite fascinating sort of life. And I was very involved in union politics as a young person because my father was in the Communist Party and all the unions as a mm-hmm. working man. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I was very fired up about that. Only mm-hmm. unions are going to look after you, you know, that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. So I, I got quite involved early on. So, yeah, writing the stories, the funny little stories from that sort of political life was fascinating. And then the funny little stories from Aboriginal political life too was fascinating because these are personal people. They had personal lives, you know. This was before Paddy Dodson even gave his first speech, you know, before Michael Mansell even gave his thing to the Queen. I was working with this mob and I'm a 20-year-old. It was fascinating fun and marching with Kevin Gilbert, you know, up around Parliament House. Mm. If he called us up at work and said, we're going on a march, we'd all leave work and go on a march. And then, you know, rules came in. You couldn't leave work to go march down Parliament House. But we'd do it anyway. So it was a fascinating life. And then when the whistleblowing happened, I thought that's another thing I've got to get rid of. Got to tell the truth about that, actually. So, you know, we did some of it in Utopia, um, John Pilger's movie. But the whole truth of it needed to come out because I was... I was really, it was wrong what they did. It was wrong what they did to the black fellows in the intervention, but it was, it, it was wrong what they did to me, mm. trying to be a public servant, giving mm. frank and fearless advice, mm. and me, you know, just being terribly underhandedly investigated and coming, persecuted, you know, and yeah. persecuted and coming to work. Why do my keys work? Mm-hmm. Why can't I put my car in the basement? Mm. Like, what's going on? Why am I being moved from my policy director's job? Mm. Why is my boss not talking to me? Why are they raiding my house all of a sudden? Yeah, it was pretty bad. Mm-hmm. And, like, I was mentally in a very horrible place for so much of that. Mm-hmm. Thank God for the mental health service. I used mm-hmm. to ring them up all the time. I want to kill myself, mm-hmm. you know. Like, you really feel terribly mm-hmm. oppressed. Mm-hmm. I mean, I felt oppressed as an mm-hmm. Aboriginal person. Mm-hmm. But as an adult, you really know mm-hmm. what it's like when that happens mm-hmm. to you. And, you know, I lost all my things that I worked all my life for, but they're just things, you know, I got them back in the end. But my daughter was at home alone when they raided the house and she's like, what are the police doing here? You know, she's a university student. Mum, there's police at our house. So, yeah, it was a bit freaky. And then for them to vilify my relationship with an Aboriginal group at Murujulu who were about to see the army come in, anyway... The stories in the book are just great stories and it's great to tell stories. And I was always a poet. My brother was a poet, my elder brother, and we were all musicians in our family. And writing poetry was my outlet as a child for my own recovery. And then I joined Us Mob Writers here. And Kevin Gilbert used to always encourage me to write and, you know, to have somebody like that who wrote so many amazing things. And his daughter always encouraged me. Kerry was a friend. So, yeah, I love writing poetry. It's my thing now. I really love it. And I I'm actually think I'm all right at it. Uh, so it's lovely to do 
Yeah, I do love writing. I love the imagination and the fantasy world of it, so I've got a few other novels up my sleeves. Just a few. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I'm going to do that. That's my little yeah. part-time thing I do in the background. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. No, that's lovely. I think that's stories really connect to people, you know. Somebody may not feel connection to politics, but if you can connect them to the story, totally. Then you've got their attention. Totally. Yeah. So Tim, you've got a, a book in the works, but before we talk about that, I'd just like to mention something I read um, that you'd wrote and pardon me if I'm pronouncing this incorrectly, is it the Mingin Quarterly? Uh, Mianjin. Mianjin mm. Quarterly, called The End of the World as We Know It. I thought that was a, mm. a very powerful piece, and it was about last summer's catastrophic bushfires. You wrote, uh, even after this summer, governments, almost without exception, are not just failing to act, but are actively standing in the way. They continue to provide tax concessions and royalty holidays to fossil fuels. They introduce legislation to criminalise protest and suppress advocacy, and they mobilise not just police against peaceful protesters, but they also spread lies and misinformation, misdirecting attention towards convenient scapegoats. They reduce funding to fire services and hand gigalitres of free water to cold mines and the fracking industry, as we know. That wasn't Tim, that was me interjecting that. Their divisive rhetoric pits people against each other and feeds hatred. So this is why we desperately need a change in government. You've summed it up so beautifully there. Like we've got a government right now that's doing the equivalent of sticking its fingers in its ears and going la, 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 you know, when we try to talk mm. about these issues. So might, might I ask you to talk a little bit about your writing and, and your book mm. and what, what, uh, what's hopefully going to be on the shelf fairly soon? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, storytelling and, and, and writing and kind of and, and culture is, is so deep in me too. Um, and yeah, as, a, a, as mentioned, I'm a, I'm a musician as well, and that's kind of that's a really deep part of my culture. I was thinking, as I've done a few times, listening to Janara, my culture, the Jewish culture, is in some ways both the inverse and very very similar to Indigenous culture. The inverse in that we have been uprooted for millennia. The 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 Jewish people roamed. Um, Europe and Asia for and parts of Africa for thousands of years having having been a homeless people and and the way the way our people dealt with that is without connection to land we really clung to connection with each other um, and and the the deep and old stories that go with that and the <coughs> excuse me sorry and the art and culture that goes with that and the music that goes with that. Um, for me, listening to and playing Klezmer music, Jewish folk music, is is that connection to to deep history. Um, and yeah, that's very that's very deep in our culture broadly. It's very deep in my family. Um, I have I have writers and musicians and poets on both sides of my family. Um, and yeah, it's it's always been something one one of the ways that we communicate um, in in a very deep way. And so yeah, I've always I've always found working with words to be a really interesting and important way to work through ideas. And that can be just in conversation, of course, but it can be just in sitting down on your own sometimes and just writing something to think it through and then use that as a, as a conversation starter as well. And that's, that's why I write. I don't write for myself. I write for the capacity that it brings to, to work with people and to communicate with people. Um, and, 
Yeah, so that that piece in Meangin, um, bits of that are definitely woven into the book that I'm working on at the moment. Um, that I need to finish in the next two and a half weeks, <laughs> um, which will be called Living Democracy. Um, it's a, uh, I think of it as as an ecological manifesto is what what I'm thinking of it as, and it's about these very much these ideas that we've been talking about. It's about the fact that our our political systems are frankly responsible for creating the system mm-hmm. the, the the situation that we're in mm-hmm. partly because they're responsible for creating it they're absolutely desperately mm-hmm. ill-suited mm-hmm. to finding the solutions to the situation that we're in and they're really frankly very ill-suited to enabling us to survive the situation that we're in um, and what do we do how do we how do we create how do we cultivate how do we build systems that are better able to help us deal with this situation and survive and thrive into the future. And for me, it's it's understanding how living systems work. Um, ecologies are all about interdependent diversity. Um, and our system is all about separating and dominating. It's what, what I'd term anti-ecological thought that has evolved over a few thousand years and has really dramatically sped up its evolution over the last century and a half or so. Um, and that's not how we should work. That's not how we want to work. That's not that's not who we are, like we were saying before about the, you know, the, the um, Stanford Prison Experiment and stuff that needed to be falsified to prove that we're selfish and... And when we're not, so yeah, the books exploring the ideas and and the examples, the mm. things that people are doing all around the world mm. now to be building participatory democratic systems from the grassroots up. What's mm. happening in 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 Rojava in Kurdistan? Mm. Um, what's happening in Barcelona? Mm. What's happening with buy nothing groups all mm. over the place? And and you know and and commons groups mm. that are starting up, sharing mm. um, communities, gift economies, mm. um, what's happening with the extraordinary um, alternatives to policing mm. that, are, that are being built around the place, that actually you get better outcomes in communities. Of course you get better outcomes <laughs> in communities when you're out there working with people for, for you know, working together for, for mutual benefit mm. instead of coming in with a gun. Um all of these, all of these ideas weaving into practical things that people are doing, and saying, "Okay, right, let's let's do this. This is this is the pattern of thought that that we need, and these are the these are the ideas that we need to start implementing." So, uh, when might we look forward to your book? <laughs> is, is there if a really I, imminent release date? Um, as long as I meet the deadline, which I am going to meet, yeah. um, it will be out in September. Wonderful. Okay, perfect. And you touched on the idea of a different type of democracy that mm. we need. We wanted to talk about participatory democracy. Would both of you mm. like to um, comment on your thoughts around how we can shift into more participatory democracy style of politics? Mm. I think there's practical things that we mm. can do from from a from a kind of an, a capital D democracy perspective, mm. and then there's all sorts of things that we can do. Um, I think one of the most important things that we can do is to understand democracy everywhere in our lives. And, you know, the the amazing, brilliant, brilliant, late lamented anarchist thinker and activist David Graeber um, had a lovely way of, of talking about the fact that everybody, even people who hate the idea of what can be labelled communism or anarchism, live it all the time in things like choosing what to have for dinner. You sit down at a table and it's not as though you vote 
for one person to choose to make dinner. Sometimes it just, you know, culturally often it falls to one member of the family, but very often, you know, not just kind of in ordinary family life, but you get together with friends and you make a communal decision. You sit down together and you work it out. Mm. What's going to suit you? Oh, I need halal food. I'm a vegetarian or I'm, a, I'm allergic to such and such. And you work it out together. That's democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, organising community gardens, mm-hmm. walking school buses um, is democracy. Um, more and more of it's being formalised in terms of things like, you know, there's amazing work going on with, with community-owned renewable energy cooperatives around the country and one here in Canberra that, that I'm part of, the Solar Share program, which I'm sure many of your listeners know about. Um, you know, that's all democracy. And we need to actually do that from the bottom up. We have to do that from the bottom up. It has to be grown. It can't be, it can't be imposed top down. But there are things that government can do too, and there are things that representatives can do. Creating the space for citizens to come in in formal spaces, whether it's citizens' juries or citizens' assemblies, or proper consultation—not the fake consultation that we often get from governments who've already made their decision and developers have have told them what they want to do and paid them their donations, and so they get it. Um, true consultation, mm-hmm. true deliberative processes. And that's, to me, that's the antidote to the, um, you know, to the adversarial politics mm-hmm. that we have is to create these proper mm-hmm. deliberative conversations um, from from the grassroots up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the, you know, it's, it's the opposite of these, of these violent mm-hmm. systems of power too. Um, you know, one of the most spectacular kind of insights... Mm-hmm that I've ever come across kind of in that space is um, people are probably aware that Mao Zedong said power, political power grows from the barrel of a gun and the the brilliant Jewish political philosopher and, and, and refugee from, the Nazi, from Nazism, um, Hannah Arendt, responded to that saying, from the barrel of a gun you get complete and immediate obedience but what can never grow from the barrel of a gun is power. Power has to be grown mm. from communication, from talking, from mm. building systems of, you know, of working together. Mm. That is power. Um, and so, yeah, to me, this you know, mm. this idea of living democracy, mm. um, participatory democracy, weaves into everything mm. from from colonialism and the ongoing genocide mm. that is still going on mm. in this country, through to mm. you know day to day life for the rest of us in, in you know for, mm-hmm. for many of us in middle class Canberra, um, mm. what you know wherever, it's all about how we work together, how we make our decisions together. Mm-hmm. And thank you, Tim and Janara. Your culture and First Nations culture, I'm sure, across the globe has had some form of participatory democracy um, in their history. That's probably the foundation of of the decision-making process for most most First Nations cultures. Could you tell us a little bit about how you'd like to maybe bring some of that into um, shifting our current government's structure and making it more equitable for everybody? Totally. So one of the things I've been doing since 1996 Mm -hmm. is um, Aboriginal women's business workshops Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. Aboriginal law and spirituality Mm -hmm. workshops for people who are not First Nations people in order to explain to them how our traditional business works, mm-hmm. how, our, how our lives work and how mm-hmm. it all sort of works together, governance-wise, mm-hmm. knowledge systems, everything. <clears throat> and one of the things I always share is that we, this is how we make community decisions. This is how we govern the community. So we have circles. We create talking mm-hmm. circles. We have mm-hmm. a community circle. Uh, where people come together, there are ceremonial circles, everything's circles. You see a lot of circles in our 
in our artwork. But it's a natural, it's a natural human thing anyway, and everybody faces each other. And and what usually happens is that anybody over the age of puberty who's been through puberty initiation is expected to contribute to the governance decision making of a community. And everybody comes together to make those decisions together. The elders are, 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 you know, sit around the outside. Mm -hmm. Their purpose is to hold the law, to be able mm -hmm. to manage any conflict, mm -hmm. to create unity mm -hmm. and to hold the sort of decision-making process. Mm -hmm. And what happens is when they think about the decisions they have to make, if one person dissents, if one person does not agree, the decision is not made. So there it's just pure consensus. Mm -hmm. There's no majority holds sway here. And that person could be a 12-year-old boy who's just been through puberty who does not agree, but he's mm. considered an adult and now it's time for mm. him to have an opinion. It could be the same, a young woman. It could be an older woman. It could be a person who is impacted by such a decision. Mm -hmm. So all decisions are made by consensus, which is what I like about the mm. Greens. They mm. try really hard to do that. Can you imagine with mm. everybody who's a member? <laughs> try doing that, you know, with policy. So it's definitely like that. And talking circles are structured in such a way that, you know, elders are around the outside, men are on one side, women are on the other. So there's a recognition of the complementary sacred business that goes into mm -hmm. both men and women's business. Children are, uh, you know, with their mothers and their grandmothers. Uh, young men are in certain areas and so on. So the circle is created in such a way that everybody knows their space, their place and... Everybody interacts, even to the detail of who can talk to who and who can't talk to who, you know, various things in various clans. Mm. So that's extremely important. Mm. Everybody also has a responsibility for country. So this man, this woman, this young child, this mm. child, they have responsibility for that piece of country and they get to speak for it. So no one can say, I'm going to speak for that piece of country. Mm -hmm. uh, they're sovereign over mm -hmm. that country and they're spiritually sovereign. And they're self-sovereign. Mm -hmm. You know, they have that self-sovereignty because they follow the law, not because they own it. Mm -hmm. There's no words for possession. Mm -hmm. So talking circles are something that I create. I even do it at uni. You know, the first week we create our talking circle for the semester. In week 12, we close our talking circle mm -hmm. because it's, it's about teaching them how you do this complementary sy system between uh, boys and girls and men and women and the sharing circle, regardless of the diversity of everything, of any one individual, and, and to try and teach them how to do that decision-making mm -hmm. process. Uh, so the governance is really a deep aspect that, that's been developed over time to see what works. Mm -hmm. And yes, people will say, oh, it's with small groups. Yes, it is with small groups, but sometimes it's with really large groups of 300, mm -hmm. 500. When people came together on the top of Capitol Hill where Parliament House is now, they came from all around. Ewan from the coast, Wiradjuri, they mm -hmm. all sat up there, ate Bogon Moz and had discussions about how they're going to look after country all around here. Mm -hmm. Like, they did that together. Mm -hmm. They shared things. They traded. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, it was definitely a very strong governance structure mm -hmm. that works. It worked for a very long time. We did look after this country very well mm -hmm. and each other. And I love how um, that's, that is something that I reckon, that scale issue that you brought up, but works really well. But there is a scale issue where you can't do it with 20 million people in Australia. But... Uh, Tim mentioned the um, the mob in, in northern Syria, the, mm. the Kurdish Democratic Federation of Northern Syria, and they've developed an amazing way of of managing to scale this 
that exact thing from a community level where the sovereignty is held at the community level into a whole national system. Yeah, and it's we could always, do it here. Yeah, we like could. Like when I think about the governance of Australia, why is Australia just governed by the colonisers and all the white people uh-huh. that came here? Why don't we have why don't we have a system of governance that includes the sovereignty of these people who were here first as well as your sovereignty as a sovereign nation? We really need to think about that. Like, I do not want the, ha- the design of that to be in the hands of people who have no idea. Mm. And know. don't care. <laughs> it's got to it, be in our it hands. It really is the colonisers too. It's the organisers of that colonisation, right. not the people that they brought over to do the work, the normal yeah. people. It's, yeah. it's stayed in the hands of the, the organising class. Mm. And, and in, in some sense it's also given, it can be given, it has been given in some cases, Two Aboriginal people who've become the educated class who, for some reason or other, you know, they're quite happy to take the funding that gets given by the government and the kudos that comes with that Mm -hmm. to go and design something that's not going to work because it's based on what white people think should work or it's based on the minister said, well, this is the parameters of what you're allowed to do. No, no, let's do something that was here before that worked really, really well and let's just co-opt it and make it work for everybody. You know, why not? I think it's possible within this group here to do it small and then it grows and it grows and it's... I mean, they tried that with ATSIC. They kind of mucked it up. But anyway, they tried it. But it's possible to have a congress of everyone in the country mm-hmm. who can have a voice. One of the things in our culture mm-hmm. is that you ask everybody to be included. Mm-hmm. You give everybody an invitation. Mm-hmm. That's why we don't agree in the Greens with the Uluru mm-hmm. Statement from the Heart Voice to Parliament. Unless you invite everybody and include everybody in that conversation where they get to say, yes, we agree with it and they tick it off, it's not a proper consultation. And we've been saying that for a really long time. You've Mm. got to ask everybody. We used to have meetings in the early days of Aboriginal politics Mm. where all the blackfellas would come from all around the country and they'd camp somewhere. And there'd be a big meeting ground. And for two, three days before they go to meet the minister, they would all stand around and talk. And everybody got to go to the microphone or the megaphone Mm. and say whatever they wanted to say. And they talked and talked and talked until they decided what they were going to say to the government. And everybody mm-hmm. who was an adult got to do that. And you could stand up there and you could cuss, you could say what you wanted to say, you mm-hmm. could swear, you could be angry, you mm-hmm. could get it all out, and then you could make that decision with each other. And, like, mm-hmm. lots of people used to come and do that, 100 mm-hmm. people. If we all sit in a circle mm-hmm. and we all deeply listen to each other with our spirit and our heart, it's possible. When we create these talking circles amongst, you know, 150 people or 50 people or 25 mm-hmm. They all have the experience of what the deary means mm. and they, they really go into it and they see how transformative it is on the conversation mm. and ho- on how it's possible to make decisions, feeling that deep connection with everyone in the circle. I mean, our Senior Australian of the Year, Arnie Miriam, gave Dadiri to Australia so that we would all practice it. So we're all sharing it, saying to all the non-First Nations people, how about we all share this as a way of having dialogue? so that we can come to some agreement together. It's Mm. a fabulous thing. Mm. Like, I do it in my leadership work and all the people who do it are mostly non-Indigenous people Mm. and they're just like, whoa, that was amazing because they just never do it in their culture. Mm. And it's a type of ritual. Mm. It really gets into your spirit and your heart. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's Mm -hmm. kind of... um, 
um, Gennaro's shared mm-hmm. dairy with with me and, and groups that I've been part of, and and yeah, the the ritual is is so powerful and amazing. I've also found it in you know other ways of doing deliberative democracy. Mm-hmm. It's amazing when you get into a room with people all sitting around tables, kind of with the goal of working something mm-hmm. out together, and you get this amazing feeling of creation. Mm-hmm. Um, which is so powerful and, and exciting and wonderful. And, yeah, I mean, on the scale thing, there's a, there's a couple of things that I thought I'd reflect. Um, um, one is that, yeah, the, a lot of the decisions that we try to make top-down in a country, in a state like Australia, have to be made top-down because we've destroyed all the interconnection at the community level. Um, and if we recreate that kind of stuff, if we build the commons again, if we cultivate the stuff at the connections at the grassroots level, we don't need a top-down state to be telling us what to do. Mm. Um, and, you know, we can we can create systems. The, the, the way Rojava works in, in, in Kurdistan, which is now, it started as a, as a Kurdish community. It's now this extraordinary multi-ethnic community across two million people across borders in Syria, um, Iraq and Turkey. Um, based on the philosophy of Murray Bookchin, um, this amazing post-anarchist thinker um, who, 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 has, who came up with these ideas that he called municipal confederalism. Um, and... Um, yeah, Abdullah Öcalan, who was who was one of the Kurdish leaders, he 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 was a Maoist revolutionary, and he came across Bookchin's work and kind of went, right, we're doing that, um, and they do it through yeah, they create this scale of a, of, a, of a nation of two million people now, where all of the basic decisions for the community are made by the community at the community level, but they have these confederal councils where they do things which need to be coordinated, so stuff like roads and you know and. And electricity and sewerage and water and, and the and the things that really need to be coordinated across the groups and decisions that need to be made at a at a larger scale. They have delegates who are sent to help make those decisions in the same way that the community makes the decisions. It's all made by consensus. And you can create this extraordinary scale through that system. But the point of it is, as you said, Scotty, the point of it is that it the decisions remain with the community. The decision-making power remains at the grassroots and the confederal councils are absolutely responsible to the grassroots mm-hmm. at all times, whereas we've built a system which is completely the opposite. It is top-down. The decisions mm-hmm. are made by somebody else on your behalf. You get the occasional opportunity to vote for them and that's it. There's yeah. no recall. I believe one of the features wow. of the... Uh, northern syrian system the delegates to the upper councils are recallable at any at any point at any time Mm. yep that's so cool yep (laughs) must be like the whole citizens assembly approach right yeah Yeah, you're describing that yeah doing an around yeah and it's kind of moralistic too Mm -hmm. because if they start doing something wrong like Mm -hmm. imagine if they do something Mm -hmm. bad then they can be removed (laughs) Yeah, like, and yeah. it's proper, and proper they can be good. reappointed, and oh. you know the, the whole yeah, point. They, the community yeah. can bring them in. Have you mean there's accountability? There's <laughs> actually yeah. enforceable there's accountability? accountability, and it's built on this idea that yeah, you call people back, and you and you say, yeah, we don't really agree with what you've been doing, and and if they say right, I get it now, sorry, mm-hmm. off they go again. That's fine, mm-hmm. or they Ooh. take some time out, but you know it's responsibility, it's accountability. Mm-hmm. We could do a bit of that, couldn't we? I yeah. think we could do it. 
yeah. 20 oh, million people? Yeah. Yeah. A step at a time, person at a time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If no, you gave the we'll peri- people the experience of that, I bet you they would gravitate towards totally. it very quickly. And this it, brings us back to want to belong. Mm. Yeah, right. It's the psychological need of, you know, we have needs. We have, you know, mm. drive needs. And the need to belong is huge. Yeah. So, you mm-hmm. know, if there's a group and like this where you can get to say mm-hmm. you, you know i'm sure your need to belong would propel you there mm-hmm. yeah i went to a school where every day there was a meeting that was exactly what you were describing and we would the students ran the school they figured out what to do they did the the discipline within the school which was particularly intriguing um, <laughs> but they they could hire and fire teachers we could instigate new classes we could do anything we wanted um, totally and that was an experience of direct democracy, mm. of daily democracy mm. that totally. is really hard to describe to other people who haven't done it. And mm. when you find someone who has, has <laughs> done it, they'll go, oh, great, yeah, I know what you mean. That's brilliant, isn't it? Mm. And other people are left looking a bit stumped and going, mm. oh, I don't quite know what you mean. So mm. I think the more people we can get to have the experience mm. of this, this personal freedom mm. of being a, a part of a group, that actually has a say and has mm. autonomy and authority mm. within themselves, it's mm. it's liberating. It really is. And totally. if that was part of our school system, mm. then perhaps we wouldn't see half as much mental health troubles as we do. Mm. Yes. Imagine if you were a young, a young um, adult who's just past puberty and you have permission to have a voice in the government and the parliament of Australia. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you could come along now because you're considered someone who's of the mind now to be sharing in decision-making. Something I haven't come across yet. I'm not sure if you have either of you. There's a a massive youth parliament in India. Ah, yes. Yeah. Do you guys know anything Um, about that one? I've heard about them in the sense that I go to India every year because I do this form of meditation. The headquarters is in Rajasthan. And I've definitely heard about them because they do a lot of service. The university does a lot of service work with them teaching Mm. meditation to these young people. So, yeah, I've heard about that group. Mm. Mm. Well, we we'll have to get them on one day. Yeah, it'd be lovely. Um, I'm mm, sure we can do international totally, calls now. We need to get them on. Uh, well, it brings us back to what we were talking about in the beginning, which is that the people actually have the ability to make the best totally. decisions to resolve the mm. problems. Totally. And the only reason that's not happening is because it's not being allowed to happen. Mm. And it's whether or not you want to argue that current government in power believes that people are not able to make those decisions, that we're all stupid and we're sheep and we need to be herded or whether they're actually terrified that we'll be much better at making those decisions Mm. than they are. I think it's both. I think it's absolutely both. And it's interesting, it's kind of um... I think it's. I think there's a slight differentiation between kind of the the centre-right and the centre-left in that sense um, that the centre-right kind of clings to power because they really like the power Mm. actually. (laughs) <laughs> and they get the benefit out of being mm. in power, whereas the centre-left doesn't really trust people, actually. Mm. Um, and not just the centre-left, but, I mean, you know, the reason the Soviet experiment mm-hmm. failed, the reason so many of the of the communist revolutions of the late 19th, mm-hmm. early 20th century failed is because they didn't trust the people and they mm-hmm. believed in this idea of the dictatorship mm-hmm. of the proletariat, mm-hmm. that you need to impose control mm-hmm. from the top down mm-hmm. in order to mm-hmm. create a system where the people are ruling. Well, no wonder, nah. they, no wonder <laughs> they ended up in fascism, actually. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there is a tendency on... 
a lot of the left to not have faith in people being the ones who can make the decisions for their own lives. Um, and I, yeah, I, I think we really need to we really need to get past that. And that and that fight between between mm-hmm. the anarchist left mm-hmm. and, and and the socialist communist mm-hmm. left has been going on for two hundred years now, and it probably will keep going on for another two hundred. Yeah. But yeah, to me, the core of it is that people can make decisions, mm. and people make better decisions. Mm. And there's so much it doesn't. It's not even political. Like the work of Eleanor Ostrom on governing the com- Commons, the, the 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 first and still the only woman to have ever won a Nobel Prize for economics. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she she did analysis mm-hmm. of these of systems of decision making in managing common pool resources and and people following her have 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 replicated this and, and demonstrated it time after time that the best decisions in managing communities and managing common resources are always made by the people making you know who, who live who live it mm-hmm. the people on the ground who are the ones who do it and if you set up systems where somebody you know elsewhere separated from what they're actually managing is making the decisions they will make a mistake every time and their fault is in not consulting the people who are actually experiencing yeah, things and, yeah. and their, totally. their fault is being you know it, it, they've been put in a position where they have to do that most mm. of the time um our system is created to ensure that decisions are not made by the people who live with those decisions mm. actually and we need to reverse that when we had um, our, well, I say, former Greens candidates, now MLAs, <laughs> so we had them when they were candidates and then we had them when they were MLAs in the studio with us, we were talking a lot about the bushfires because it was still very much in people's consciousness. And one of the things we um, discussed was potentially there's been a lot of voters swing towards voting green who haven't voted green traditionally before and partly that's the experience we all went through you know in Mm. last summer and then through the beginning of 2020 where you can't ignore it anybody that was sitting on the fence their fence was burning down now so they were very aware of what was going on so so that you know that very dramatic experience that we were having as a nation did make people reconsider their political and voting choices And, and you talked about you know having to make the decisions when you've experienced the situation. We also interviewed a lot of the bushfire victims and survivors and we had a lady from Malakuta in here and as you might know that Malakuta got sick and tired of the government waiting to come and help them fix things and their community was utterly destroyed. Mm. Um, So they actually formed their own community organisational group to do a recovery for their community. It was uh, predominantly led by Bruce Pascoe, who mm. wrote Dark Emu, and I think his cousin. And they have made huge headway. Like, there hasn't been complete consensus in the community. There's a, there's a few people who would like to see it done a little bit differently. But what they've managed to do as a community who was deeply impacted by bushfires, they're about 80% ahead of, say, Cabago. <laughs> which Cabago is still in rubble, people still in tents, people still in caravans, people still living out of Tupperware because there's nowhere to take their things away from the rats and the water. And, mm. you know, it's just amazing to see that Cabago has been waiting for someone to come in and help and tell them what to do. And Malakuta said, look, we're just going to do it. And mm. we actually don't want government assistance now. Mm. We're actually doing a better job of it ourselves. Yes. We need yeah. to empower that to happen for everything. In, in local communities, totally. I mean, that just really heartens me to hear that story about Malakuta. Mm. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah we lovely. need to be able to say to any community, you can do this, just go ahead and do it. Don't wait for the government to come along and help. Mm. The government really should be there saying, what do you need? And then start putting the money towards it. You know, you don't need a person to come in here and help me do this or tell me what to do. 
do it together. Fabulous. Yeah. And yeah. I reckon doing things is, is one of the one of the parts where in my mind the Greens have fallen down a bit over the over the the whole life of the party really because the Labor Party has a, a big economic base of the workers and the Liberal Party has a big economic base of the bosses <laughs> but the Greens don't yet have an economic base and a natural fit for that of course is democratic businesses um, in which all of this democracy and all of this autonomy and decision making that we've been talking about occur in the workplace because of course at the moment you enter the workplace you take off your democracy hat you hang it on the peg and you can pick it up when you come out but yeah what do you think of that uh, one yeah i really love that um i was uh watching on the news last night that professor gory and some other people are getting involved in doing mental health um mental health stuff providing services in mental health uh as a business Mm-hmm. But in the sense that they're providing this for the community, but the community are involved in, in what needs to be done here. Mm-hmm. And the idea of using business is to help get business to fund it, mm-hmm. to make it more of a, all of us are in this together, let's all of us try to do it together. I mean, I don't know mm. what this structure is, but certainly when he was talking about it, I was thinking, this sounds like a good idea. Yeah, like him and a few mates got together and thought, the government's not going to do this properly, why don't we all do it? And why don't we get some mob who've got some... Bungu, some money to come and help us do this together. But certainly, you know, if you live in a country where you have to go collect your food every day, where you have to go and build your house to live in, where you've got to somehow get your water, you know, you you don't just sit on your bum and do nothing. You actually go get your mates together and you go out and you start digging for your honey ants and you you go and pick things off the trees because otherwise you're going to starve. So people, you know, have been sitting in houses for just a little bit too long, going to grocery mm. stores and supermarkets that are making billions of dollars on their business, um, you know, and, and you're sort of away from that really hands-in-the-dirt living. Mm. So then when something like a bushfire happens and you end up being in the dirt, you know, having to live without your house and your four walls and your kitchen and your toilet, what do you do? Especially mm. if you're not taught at school how yeah. to survive... And you're not taught how to go out in the bush and find your food. Mm. You know, like every time I go back and see my cultural relatives at Uluru, you go out and you dig for your food, mm. you make your cordial from the toffee tree, mm. you know, you take the branches off and you stick them in water and that's how you get your cold drink for the afternoon. Like you learn how to do it real. Mm. You don't go to the supermarket and buy a cottage bottle of cordial and stick it in water that you got from a tap. Mm-hmm. It's really real. If we do these things together and make it real, we can do... People really notice when it's that real. Mm. Yeah. I'm a big believer, I think, you know, obviously, you know, your point about democratic business and, you know, cooperative business that I know you, you put a lot of work into, Scotty. Um, big believer in that. I think, I think broadly, yeah, this, you know, I've been saying for a while in this, in this piece that, um, mm. that I had in Mianjin um, that I... Um, and, and a few others that I'm writing and, and in this book I'm talking about how we actually need you know we can we can actually build um, from the grassroots up communities of you know of shared experience and that's that's what we need to do you know obviously in the workplace as well democratic workplaces but you know whether it's whether Wherever you're involved you in your community <laughs> garden whether you're involved in you know um, your school community whether you're involved in you know whatever it is that you're doing on the ground you're doing democracy um, you're living democracy, and yeah, that's the kind of stuff that we need to be building. And I do, I do think the Greens are perfectly placed to be 
enabling that and creating that, and that and that I think is is such a. Gennaro talked about yeah, government being you know, the, the, you know creating the space, enabling people to do that. That's what I believe government's mm-hmm. role is to mm-hmm. to create the space for the community to do it themselves, mm-hmm. and it does that because it is the it is the people doing it. Mm. And I think you've answered one of our... We, we've got a swath of listener questions, which you won't even get to. When you guys were on, the, the questions were coming in. Um, so I think you've actually answered one of the questions, which was, what are you guys going to do differently to other parties to get elected? And I think you've just summed it all up beautifully well, in everything yeah. that you've just Talking said. Talking to people, being mm. real, being mm. in the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's so important. So yeah. most importantly, before we run out of time here, is how can people get in touch, find out more, um, maybe volunteer for the Greens if they'd like to do some of that, offer some support, um, educate themselves a bit more? Um, if you go to the ACT Greens website, um, which I think if I'm getting it right is act.greens.org.au, mm-hmm. um, but if you just Google ACT Greens, um, you'll find us and you can you can register there to volunteer mm-hmm. Um, you can you can find me at tim.hollow at act.greens.org.au, email me there. Um, and, yeah, I think, yeah, we're obviously going to be out talking to people a hell of a lot, but I'm really keen to be actually building, you know, participatory democratic systems through this election campaign. Dipped my toe in the water of that in the last campaign and we ran a few really interesting consultative meetings about what would you like from a representative um, we're going to be running some, you know, across the seat of Canberra, some really much deeper thinking neighbourhood democracy kind of um, processes over the over this election campaign, and uh, I reckon that that's the kind of stuff we need to be doing, whether we whether we win this seat or not. But if we do it well. We can win the seat, and I'd love to have lots of people engaged in that process. Yeah, whether there's an election or not. Yeah. <laughs> and Janelle, where yes. can I find you? You've also got a TED talk you can point people oh, to. Oh, yes, as well. I have a TED talk from Canberra that's uh, currently on the TED page and on YouTube. Um, I've also got my own website, www.janara.com. There's also an ACT Greens. Uh, thing about me and there's also an ACT Greens email which would be my name at actgreens.org.au um, I've got a mobile phone I've got a Facebook page I've got a Twitter page I've got a LinkedIn page yeah. you can find me anywhere mm. <laughs> oh, and you know Facebook page for the Senate which is great run by the Greens so yeah you can get me anywhere Okay, brilliant. Well, I'd like to thank both of you for coming in this morning. And people say, how can you talk for an hour and a half? Well, as you can see, yeah. we just yes, did and it went very quickly. <laughs> and I'd like to finish with a quote from you, Janara. It says, we're ready to build a future where we look after everyone we share this country with, including future generations and the ecosystems that support us all. So our question to our listeners is, are you ready too? Oh, yes. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and Radio Behind the Lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. 
to help out with behind the lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian new economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A dot org dot A-U Or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay. L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.